I'll turn your Bibles or bulletins to Exodus 32. Uh, on Friday, I drove by a church whose marquee read, are you ready? Here it was. It was, uh, make Jesus your BFF. Now, it took me a second to figure that out. I was kind of going through the catalog of all the, the new lingo I'm learning from my kids, then the new texting languages that are coming out, and then I finally got it. And when I got it, I got to confess to you that uh, I cringed <laughs> when I realized what it meant. I did, because I am a uh, marquee snob many, many times, and so that it made me cringe. And I started thinking this. I started thinking, I wonder what that communicates uh, to those who don't go to church. I mean, if I didn't go to church, how would I take that? Make Jesus your BFF. Uh, if I was an unchurched person, you know, what would I think? Would I think, gosh, Christians are so cool. I mean, Christians, they like, they're so in touch with reality. They get it and they get me. Is that what I would think? Or would I think, gosh, Christians are so lame. <laughs> they're so weird. They're so beep, 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 whatever, right? They don't get it. They don't get me. Well, here's what's fascinating about what we're about to do this morning. It's going to be very counterintuitive. You're not going to believe it, but I'm going to say it. Uh, what we are about to look at is the greatest ministry tool there is, the ultimate marquee on a church. In other words, the greatest tool, ministry tool to reach and communicate and connect with you and with me and with the person that doesn't have a clue about church. Do you know what it is? The golden calf. No, 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 you want to head for the doors. You got to be kidding me. No, Exodus is going to make a case that the golden calf is the most relevant ministry tool on the planet. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take all the rings of gold that are ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, 
his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the difficulty of it. We thank you for the, the hardness of it. We thank you for how uh, it is a tough uh, reality in our life. And yet it's here to help us and it's here to uh, rescue us. It's here to grace us. And we ask that you would do so. Uh, we ask that you would give what is in the passage, that you would shine on the page and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Chapters 25 through 40 are the tabernacle chapters, right? First, there's specific instructions for the tabernacle. Think of it this way, commands to create, let there be. And then there's the actual building of the tabernacle. It's the obedience to the commands, and there was. The point and the layout, the whole structure of the tabernacle is actually trying to in the structure by even having these divine fiat commands to create the tabernacle. And then the next section of it literally happening, let there be and there was, is to strike home that the tabernacle is a new creation. It's a recreative act. Uh, the tabernacle is a piece of heaven on earth. It's a microcosm of the way it's supposed to be. It's an island of paradise and the worst seas that there are on the planet. But there are three missing chapters right in the middle of the tabernacle section. That's what's so fascinating about this whole structure. Uh, chapters 32, 33, 34, these are chapters that are tabernacle-free, right in the middle of the tabernacle event. The structure here is very, very intentional. It's trying to give us the big idea of these three missing chapters. So I want you to follow the structure. Here it goes. Tabernacle, golden calf, tabernacle. So what's the golden calf doing? It's breaking up the tabernacle section, the worship section. So follow me. The golden calf breaks the worship of God. The golden calf uh, breaks the first and second commandment, which are two commandments that are directly vertical commandments that are about relating to God and the worship of God. The golden calf is being shown here. Here's the big idea, that it's in an alternative tabernacle. The golden calf is being seen as alternative worship. It's being seen as an alternative God amidst the living God. And so the big idea is this. Everyone has a golden calf. Mostly several of them. 
So every single one of us here has a golden calf. Every single person that reads the scriptures has a golden calf, and then that's why it's in the scriptures. So here's our plan. That's the big idea. Everyone has a golden calf. The big idea now is going to be unpacked. Two implications of what that means, okay? You following me? So we're going to unpack what does it mean or what, what is the significance of everyone having a golden calf? So here we go. Implication number one. I want you to notice that the Canaanites, it's not the Canaanites who build the golden calf. It's the Israelites who do. So what's happening here is God's people build the golden calf. So what's happening is the people that have been rescued from Egypt in chapters 1 through 14, they build the golden calf. The people that in chapters 14 through 18 have seen incredible, impossible grace deliver them from six impossible places, they build the golden calf. These people who believe in God, these people who intentionally are striving and wanting to build their lives around the word of God, chapters 19 through 24, specifically the law of God, they build the golden calf. The fact that the Israelites, not the Canaanites, build a golden calf is the point. Everyone has a golden calf. Religious, irreligious, church person, unchurched person, mother, father, child, daughter, son, businessman, landowner, homeless, star athlete. Everyone has a golden calf. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that you and I have a golden calf? Because the last time I checked, there was not a golden calf in my backyard. Now, I can't speak for the Mitchells. I'm just saying. I don't know what there's in their backyard. But in the Hatton backyard, there is no golden calf. So how can we say that you and I have golden calves? Do you carve shrines in your house? Do you have places where... There are these images of gods in your house. I don't know. I don't. But I'm told I have a golden calf. So here's what it means. I want you to look at the golden calf is actually an ancient Near Eastern image for Canaanite gods that were in the region. In other words, it seemed like the image, the idol image of the golden calf was very, very popular in the ancient Near East. Uh, The Egyptians even had it. All the people groups in those regions and in the ancient Near East, they had this golden calf and it represented several Canaanite gods. The image itself was not God. It represented gods or a god. In other words, the image became the place of contact between the worshiper and the god. It was a visible image of a powerful deity that would unleash power on its worshipers. And so the question is, what kind of power could these idols unleash on you? I mean, how could they have such control? Have you ever wondered, I mean, how could someone have a golden calf? It seems so pagan. It seems so like we've evolved from that. How can that happen? The reason why is because the image itself was a place of contact where power was unleashed on a worshiper. What kind of power? Uh, The power to give or withhold your well-being. The idol actually had the power to give you happiness or withhold it. Give you security and control in your life 
or send you spiraling out of control. So you can see here that the golden calf had the power in the ancient Near East to give a person control over things that were ultimately important to them. That's why there were gods for everything in the ancient Near East. That's why there were pantheons of gods. That's why there were idols for love and there were idols for romance. There was the God of sex. There was all kinds of God. There's the God of land, God of animals, the God of wealth, the God of futility. There's gods that would prevent doom and destruction and pain. Remember the evil eye? You've heard that saying that comes all the way down. That comes from that time. It's actually a God that will keep curses away from you or a God that will unleash curses upon you. Uh, there was the idols of fruitful uh, crops, their sun, the storms, rain. There were gods for everything. And nothing has changed today, right? I mean, we want to control everything that's important to us, don't you? I mean, I know I do. And so we carve golden calves believing that they're going to provide for us well-being and happiness and life and worth and value and even purpose and significance and control and safety and security. Over the years, I've noticed that uh, I've noticed a golden calf in my life over the years. And I, I should have noted this right from the very beginning. Um, I mean, as soon as I could self-consciously become aware that I'm a human being, when does that happen? Some people like say, and they're four years old, five years old. Um, I'm, I mean, I was more like 10. <laughs> So other folks say, yeah, I knew have my first memories at four. I'm like, no, I, don't, I didn't have that. Mine were about 10, nine. And my first conscious thoughts were, I need to be the best. I've got to be perfect. And so what that meant for me is like, okay, well, what kind of, what does that mean, first of all? What are perfect standards in this area and that area? What are perfect standards in being a football player? What are perfect standards in having the, the perfect hit? What are perfect standards in baseball? What are perfect standards in music? And what are perfect standards? And it was like, if I hit whatever I thought those standards were, uh, that God would give me worth and value, I'd be saved. And if it didn't, um, if I wasn't the best, it was like death to me. I noticed as well over the years another golden calf in my life, and that's respect and human approval and influence. It's like this conversations I noticed can turn quickly into, hey, look at me kind of conversations, right? Someone would say, hey, I, I got a new cat. And I'd say, wow, you got a new cat. That's really cool. Hey, do you know I have a dog? And he's about 120 pounds. He's a big dog, and he doesn't like cats. I mean, somehow, in the middle of a conversation, it turns into look at me kind of thing, right? You want respect. You want approval. I can have conversations where I'm interacting with my wife, and we can have uh, arguments that could be great moments for understanding each other and great moments for further communicating and doing the hard work of relating, and they get hijacked. Because I want respect. And so my needs and my desires for respect completely hijack a really good conversation that's pursuing to understand something. How about you? 
What, what particular golden calves do you have in your life? The golden calf is here to help us. It's here to grow us. It's here to grace us. There's three incredible descriptions of what happens when a golden calf gets a hold of our life. It's, it's uh, in verse 7, they corrupted themselves. In verse 9, they're stiff-necked people. In verse 25, this is very, very interesting. They were broken loose. You know what that's picturing? The Israelites are so desperate to control their lives, and in their attempts to control their lives, they actually lose control of their lives. They're unleashed. They're broken loose. All three descriptions here are describing personal breakdown and disintegration. All are describing a deep, radical, personal immaturity. In other words, the opposite of these words would be that you grow and mature as a person, that you fill and complete and you have an intactness and an integrity to you, that there's a movement of holiness and shalom and peace that comes in your life. The opposite of maturity or the opposite of immaturity is that you become whole and complete. In other words, what these idols do and what the golden calves do in our life is they, they make a shallow, weak, immature, stuck people. Have you ever wondered why an 80-year-old can still act like a 16-year-old? My professor, my favorite professor at seminary, he pulled me aside one day and he said, Jeff, the Christian life, I used to think, was this, uh, you have time and growth and you, you kind of go like this, but you're always making progress. The Christian life is much, much more complicated than that. Instead of one line that's just kind of slow, it has its dips and its valleys, but it's, it's progressing. He says it's many lines in many directions. In some areas of our life, we're very, very mature. In other areas of our life, we're incredibly spiritually immature. There are areas of our life that we have been paralyzed and stunted. It's in those areas that there's a golden calf. He would say, I'd be in in staff faculty seminary meetings where grown men in their 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s would yell like little three-year-olds if their curriculum was cut. If we don't grow in identifying the specific idols or calves, golden calves in our life, we stunt ourselves. We break down ourselves. We don't mature and grow as people. Okay? Um, so how do we do that? How do we identify the dark energy unleashed in golden calves in our life and in our relationships? How do we do that? Look at Exodus 32, 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods. One of the things we can do is just follow our impatience. I mean, follow where you seek to control your life. I mean, it's easy for me to see that. Where do I get impatient? Where do I seek control of my life? Get me in a traffic jam. I mean, have, have a, a, a traffic agent or an airline agent cancel our flight. 
And all of a sudden, I start speaking like God. I start speaking like I can say divine fiats. I say, let there be no traffic, I start saying. It just starts happening. I immediately seek the control. I say, let the jerk in the semi get off the road, right? Or let the person at the airline ticket know how important a person I am. Divine fiats just start coming out of me. Let there be, let there be control in my life. So find where you're impatient. Find where you seek to control. You're going to find a golden calf. Easily. Exodus 32.1, continue. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, man, we don't know what's become of him. I mean, can you hear it? When he delayed, there was a sense of impatience. The delay uh, made, man, we, we've got to get control of the situation. This isn't good. Uh, but now it's a little more, can you hear the anxiety? Can you hear the fear? As for this man, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. He's been up there 40 days. Now what are we going to do? So follow your fears and follow your anxieties. Think of your fears and your anxieties like weeds. We've said this before. When you're fearful and you're anxious, grab it like a weed and look at the root. You grab your fears and your anxieties, you're always going to find roots. And so it might be the, the fear of failure. The fear of flaws and imperfections in your life. That's the nervous energy that's always circling you and always circling what you do and always circling your being because there's this radical insecurity or fear of failure or a fear of rejection. Uh, Grab them, follow them. Our, Our most overwhelming emotions are actually gifts from God. They force us to see it's a weed. What's at the root? They force us to follow the golden calves in our lives. Okay? All right. So everyone has a golden calf. Implication number one, find yours. That's the implication. What's your golden calf? The only way to grow as a person, because remember, these are Christians. The only way for you to grow as a Christian, the only way for you to grow as a human being, the only way for you to grow and mature and become more human is to find them in your life. Okay, implication number two. I want you to notice how catastrophic the golden calf sin is. Do you see how catastrophic it is? I mean, the earlier doubt and unbelief of the Israelites, we've seen it. We've seen it six times in six impossible places. We've seen their doubt. Uh, We've seen their unbelief. But this seems to be on a whole other level, doesn't it? I mean, it seems so much more catastrophic. Look what God does. He says, did you catch that, what we read in verse 7? He no longer calls them my people. He calls them Moses' people. So in verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. It's no longer my people. Your people, whom you brought up, not whom I brought up, whom you brought up, Moses, out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The other thing that indicates this is really catastrophic is he threatens to judge them. Verse 10, now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Again, wrath, what does that mean? Do you hear the consumption? Do you hear that that word is being undone? That word is 
breakdown. That word is disintegration. In other words, when God withdraws or God separates himself from us, when God breaks off a relationship with us, whatever he breaks it off with, you disintegrate. You fall to pieces because he is the existent one. He is life itself. And if he is if he departs or he drives us from his presence, we psychologically, spiritually, relationally, physically unwind. And that's called death in the Bible. And so that's threatened. And what's fascinating too is so far in 31 chapters of Exodus, how many times has sin been mentioned? I'll tell you, 10 times. In 31 chapters, sin has only been mentioned 10 times. In the calf debacle, in two chapters, it's mentioned 11. Something big's going on here. Really, really big. And here it is. I want you to notice the parallels with the fall of Adam that's happening here. What's happening here is there's there's a comparative fall of Adam and all the world with the fall of Israel at the golden calf. I mean, Israel was created by the spirit of God, remember? What was the spirit of God doing? Hovering over Israel, over like a cloud as it led it through and parted the seas. Remember the very first, well, the second verse of Genesis, the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the face of the earth at creation. Again, you have this sense of a recreating a people, a recreating, doing, hitting the reset button and starting over again with a new people. You get that sense with Israel. It's whole history. Remember, they're getting Genesis in the context. It's the Israelites that got the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis wasn't written and Abraham was reading it. It's when Moses went up on the mountain that the, the law, the first five books are given. So the Genesis account is actually trying to help Israel understand what's taking place, that they are a new creation. And this is how it was in the first creation, right? Then you get the sense of Israel is called God's son, just like Adam was called God's son. You also have this, that Israel was given God's law. It was given God's word to build its life around. Just like Adam was that God's word and God's law was forming a covenantal relationship between God and Adam and now God and Israel. And watch what happens immediately, immediately after those words are given. They break it. And so what we get at Israel, it's, it's a cataclysmic event because it's like the fall of Israel is happening right before our eyes. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. You know what happened after the fall of Adam? It all came down to one lone man. God's talking to the satanic serpent, and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring and your offspring, and he is going to strike your head. And he's, you're going to bruise his heel because he's going to stomp on you so hard. Do you know what happens here at the fall of Israel? It all comes down to one lone man. He implores God, oh God, turn away from your wrath. 
He implores God and says, oh God, remember your promises and your grace to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He stands in the gap, and what he's called is he actually starts mediating between God and Israel, and he starts bringing grace to Israel, and he starts bringing mercy to Israel, and he actually starts bringing the forgiveness of sins to Israel. He tells God, literally, take me instead. Did you see that in the text? He says, listen, please blot me out of your book in their place. In chapter 33, commentators go crazy over it because in 33, there's this weird report that Moses starts setting up a tent. And they can't figure that out because the tabernacle hasn't been built yet. The instructions have been given. It hasn't been built yet. And they're like, where did this come from? Because it's actually called a tabernacle. It's called a tent of meeting. And it's not built in the middle of Israel. Did you see what the text says in 33? It says Moses builds a tent outside the camp, outside Israel. It says far away from Israel. And Moses pitches the tent and he calls it a tabernacle. And Moses is the only one who's allowed in the tabernacle. And the text says when Moses goes into the tabernacle, a cloud hovers over Moses. And all of Israel rises and watches. And this is where you get some of the most beautiful stuff that we love in the scriptures. It says that God speaks to Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. Moses is the lone survivor. Moses is the lone savior. And he saves Israel. It all came down to one man. When Moses said, take me instead, blot me out of the book of life in their place, you know what God said? No. No, Moses. I will not. Years later, though, there's a better Moses that comes along. And he says, take me instead. Blot me out of the book of life for them. And God says, yes. Yes, I will. And God says, basically, you're the tabernacle. You're the place where atonement of sin happens. You're the place of complete, perfect holiness. You I speak to face to face as God to God. You're the lone survivor, Jesus. You're the lone savior. Everyone has a golden calf. Implication number one, find yours. Implication number two, find the lone survivor. Find the lone savior. Because here's what happens. Wherever you have sinned, and wherever you continue to sin, wherever you find your golden calf, Jesus took that sin, those sins, that golden calf to the cross for you. 
And not only that, what I want you to do, if you're a Christian, I want you to think of it this way. Okay, he's taken your sin, that golden calf, to the cross. He's, he's killed its guilt. He, he was blotted out of the book of life for you so you wouldn't be blotted out. But now as you struggle and go against this golden calf, you do so as a victor and a winner because in that specific area that you struggle, in that specific golden calf that you wrestle with, he was obedient for you. And so he was perfect for you in that area. Let's say it has to do with making uh, idolatry out of your career, trying to find worth and value out of your career. Well, he held his calling and his his vocation before God perfectly. He never made an idol out of his calling and his ministry and his vocation before God. But he didn't do that for you. So now you look at your career and you can hit the reset button. You don't have to use it as a golden calf. Reset. It's not my object of worship. It doesn't define me. It's not my God anymore. Jesus was perfect for you. How about those of us that have more relational idols? You know, we like the approval of people. We want certain uh, romance and and uh, we got to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It just seems like they're going to make us me significant or this person's going to give me worth and value. Well, you can hit the, the reset button in those areas. They're golden calves. But Jesus treated people and loved people perfectly. He didn't need them for himself. He loved them for them. But he did that for you. So where you fail to love, he loved. And you can hit the reset button and your alternative worship is turned into true worship because he's your approval. He's where you get your love. Everything you're looking for in the golden calf, he's the only one that can provide it. And when that happens, you start loving people, not using them, not needing them your selfish worth and value realities. When we turn to him afresh in the midst of our golden calves, our hearts get reset. Our lives get reset. We mature. We grow as people. We start becoming who he made us to be. So I want you to to find the golden calves in your life. Those of you that are Christians and you know that you got the golden calves in your life, I want you to find them, not out of fear. I want you to find them because he really, really does want you to grow. He really wants to replace that worship with true worship. He really does and has set you free from those areas so that you can trust him and rest in him and rejoice in him and rely on him instead of those golden calves. So everyone has a golden calf. Find yours. And then find the lone survivor. Amen. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus, who is the lone savior, the lone survivor. And we not just um, commemorate or observe what he's done up here. That Jesus, we thank you that you're spiritually present here. We thank you that even now you, you want to make more real to us 
your life and your death and resurrection. You want to make more real to us that you are the one who is our control. You are the one who is our security and our worth and our value. You alone justify. Uh, instead, of, instead of saying that these golden calves are the ones that delivered us like the Israelites and like we do, may we truly, even here, experience more that you're the one that delivers us. You're the one that takes us out of Egypt. You alone are the Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen.